0: one two3 testing one two three this is radio free Mormon on the air broadcasting behind enemy lines tonight's episode tithing refund well today is Monday May 11th 2020 and today begins the eighth week of putting up a new podcast every weekday here at radio free Mormon trying to do my bit during this coronavirus pandemic to help my listeners who are sheltering at home. Yesterday I was looking at Bill Reel's Facebook page, and on his page is posted an official letter from the First Presidency of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. I am pleased to report that it announces a tithing refund program. It is under official church letterhead, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, Office of the First Presidency. It has the address 47 East South Temple Street, Salt Lake City, Utah, and then the zip code. It is dated May 3rd, 2020. It is addressed to General Authorities and the following priesthood leaders in all countries, Area 70s, Stake Mission and District Presidents, Bishops and Branch Presidents. It then has in parentheses under that to be shared electronically or by telephone with all members. Well, that makes sense that it would be shared electronically or by telephone with all members because we are in the midst of this coronavirus pandemic still. Under that, there is an underlined title to this letter, Tithing Refund Program, so we know what the letter is about. By the way, at the bottom of the letter, it is a one-page letter. It is signed, Sincerely Yours, and then appear the signatures of Russell M. Nelson, Dallin H. Oaks, and Henry B. Eyring, the first presidency. The body of the letter goes as follows. The ongoing pandemic, has created serious challenges for many members of the church, especially for those who have suffered loss of employment and other financial setbacks due to economic problems. Our hearts go out to all members of the church during these trying times. Well, it's nice to know that the First Presidency recognizes the economic difficulties that members of the church are suffering during this period of time, and apparently they're going to do something about it. I mean, something more than just praying about it or fasting about it, or having their hearts go out To all the members of the church. The second paragraph reads as follows, the Lord has blessed his church greatly during prior years of prosperity. Well, that's certainly the truth we know about the EPA fund and the many, many, many billions of dollars that are in the EPA fund. The last we knew, it was over 100 billion dollars. I expect that since a lot of that was in stocks and the stock market has taken a beating, it may be down to only around 60 or 70 billion dollars in this account, but still a sizable Amount We have felt impressed, the first presidency goes on, we have felt impressed to consider what more the Lord would have us do to care for those in need. After much discussion, earnest pleading, and heartfelt prayer to know the will of the Lord, we feel strongly that the Lord's storehouse should be opened for a season for the blessing of his saints. This is good news. We are pleased to announce a general tithing refund program to serve as a help in these difficult times. The church will refund up to three years of tithing payments directly to members who have contributed in the past. Eligible recipients include all active and less active members as well as all former members who paid tithing on or after May 1, 2017. Members should contact their bishop or branch president to request a refund. I hope you have your bishop's phone number handy. Additional instructions will be sent to unit leaders within the next few days. We pray the Lord's continued blessings upon all his children, and more particularly, upon those who have so faithfully consecrated of their means for the building of his kingdom. Sincerely yours, Russell M. Nelson, Dallin H. Oaks, and Henry B. Eyring, there are their signatures, one above the other, and then underneath it is typed, the First Presidency. Well, I want to say a few things about this letter announcing the tithing refund program signed by the members of the First Presidency. First and foremost, it's a fake. Now, it was not immediately apparent to everybody that this was a fake. There were a number of people who immediately called it out as being a fake, and we'll get to them in a second. But there was a second group, and this is on Bill Reel's Facebook page, so there's going to be a lot of suspicious people looking at this letter that follow Bill Reel, as you might imagine. But one of the people there asked Bill where he got this letter, and he said it was sent to him. And that apparently satisfied that particular individual as to the authenticity of the letter. Well, Bill, if it was sent to you, then it must be real. Pardon the pun. <laughs> <laughs> but the first thing I want to note about that is that Bill Real never said who sent it to him. And notice the use of the passive voice. He doesn't say who sent it to him. He simply says that it was sent to him. Once again, the passive voice frequently used to hide information that you do not want other people to know. And Bill used it expertly here and to good effect because it seems to have completely convinced this one individual that it must be authentic since it was sent to him. Well, I will let you in on a little secret. I'm the one who sent it to him. So I don't think that makes it authentic. I did not create this letter, but I did find it floating about on the Internet, and it is causing quite a stir in a number of circles. Other people who read the letter started looking at the letterhead and dissecting it and trying to see if this was an authentic letterhead. Other people might analyze the signatures to see if they are indeed authentic signatures of the First Presidency and comparing them with other signatures of the members of the First Presidency to see if they match or to see if they're forged. All of those details are good ideas to follow up on and to compare but really you don't have to go to all that trouble because you can tell immediately by looking at this letter that it's a fake. How? Not by the signatures, not by the letterhead, but simply because the LDS Church would never refund tithing money to its members. In other words, this letter does not require a lot of detailed analysis to conclude that it's a fake. All you have to do is look at it and read it and you know it's a fake because the LDS Church would never ever do something like this. Now, the person who wrote this Was clever enough to make it at least apply only to the past three years and also to apply only to those people who had paid tithing within the last three years who paid tithing on or after may 1st 2017 as it's put in the letter another dead giveaway is the fact that this tithing refund is not limited only to active faithful observant members of the lds church indeed it goes beyond that and says eligible recipients include all active and less active members well we know right there that that's not true the church would never in a million years return tithing to active members and the church would never in a billion years return tithing to less active members as well as all former members who paid tithing so in other words even people who've left the church in the past three years but paid tithing on or after may 1st 2017 qualify for this tithing refund Okay, that's not one in a million, that's not one in a billion, that's one in a trillion now if we're talking about refunding tithing to ex-members, to former members of the church. When I look at this particular letter, allegedly from the first presidency, I'm reminded of the Mark Hoffman forgeries from the 1980s. Mark Hoffman discovered a lot of old documents related to early church history and he sold a number of them to the LDS Church. Many of the Hoffman documents were sent to experts in the field for analysis and a number of those experts concluded that they were authentic, even though we know now that they were not. But there was one person who knew from the get-go that they were not authentic, that they were forgeries, and that person was Gerald Tanner. Now, Gerald Tanner, of course, was an anti-Mormon. He did not believe any of the truth claims of the LDS Church and had spent his life investigating the LDS Church and its history and from his point of view shining a light on that history to show that it did not add up, that it was not true. So first off, as far as Gerald Tanner was concerned, there's nobody who would want more for some of these Hoffman documents to be authentic documents because some of those documents really cast a bad light on early Mormonism. Documents such as the Salamander Letter. And yet, Gerald Tanner was not fooled. How is it that Gerald Tanner was not fooled, even while many of the experts who examined the documents were fooled? Gerald Tanner was not an expert in authenticating ancient documents. He did not actually examine the documents himself. So how did he know that they were fake? By using common sense. What Gerald Tanner said was, what are the odds that one guy, Mark Hoffman, is going to find all of these documents? And that was the end of the question for him. No, one guy is not going to find all these documents. That is a one in a million chance. And therefore, if one guy is not going to find all these documents, then they've got to be phony. That's what Gerald Tanner concluded. And eventually, Gerald Tanner was proved to be correct, while all the experts that authenticated these documents were found to be incorrect. So sometimes it can be a mistake and even misleading to... To jump right into the details of a purported document without first looking at the document as a whole and making an initial assessment. This is what is called not seeing the forest for the trees. Along a similar line, my dad was an aeronautical engineer and he worked on a number of projects for the military which involved his working at wind tunnels for a large portion of his career, designing and testing designs for rockets. Yes, my dad really was a rocket scientist. But once when I was a teenager, we sat down together because I was having trouble in physics class. My dad knew physics backward and forward, especially high school physics, but for me it was a completely insoluble mystery. I could not understand how to do it. And I can't say that I understood physics really a whole lot better after sitting down with my dad, but I do remember one thing he taught me about basic math. And that was once you do a math problem, before you start Going into the details of your answer and checking it to see if you got it right, it's a good idea just to sit back and look at the answer you have and see if it's in the right ballpark. In other words, 2 times 5 equals 10. But if you've got a 2 and say 4 digits after the decimal point, like 2.1234, and you're multiplying it times 5 with another 4 digits after the decimal point, like 5.1234, 5678 and you work this out on paper and you come up with an answer before you start getting into the details of figuring out if you multiplied this correctly It's a good thing just to look at your answer and see if it's in the right ballpark because the right ballpark for that answer would be, it's gonna be around 10. It'll be a little bit over 10. But if you've got an answer there that's around 100 or 1,000 or one, that answer is not even in the right ballpark, so you need to stop right there and go back and try it again because obviously you've made a mistake. And if you don't take a second just to check and see if your answer is in the right ballpark, you can get immediately into the details, i.e., the numbers after the decimal points in trying to figure out if you got it right, without realizing that your answer is obviously wrong in the first place. It's kind of like the old saying about spending your life climbing a ladder only to find out when you get to the top that it's been leaning against the wrong tree. And come to think of it, that saying may describe in a nutshell my four-decade history in the LDS church. Spending your life climbing a ladder only to find when you get to the top it's been leaning against the wrong tree. But another example of this kind of thing has to do with a story that I heard in college. And I heard it from a friend who was taking a class in orienteering. Now, orienteering is a competitive sport in which participants find their way to various checkpoints across rough country with the aid of a map and compass. And he told me the story, which I thought was kind of interesting. I've never forgotten it, even though it's been quite some time, and this is a story. Their teacher was out with the class in the countryside. Everybody has their maps, everybody has their compasses. And the professor says, Okay, now you need to find this river that's on the map and all the students set to work with their maps and their compasses and figuring out latitude figuring out longitude trying to figure out where this river could possibly be and there's a lot of commotion they're very excited they're talking to each other they're rustling the maps and a lot of work is going on and this goes on for about five minutes and one of the students is coming up with one answer as to where the rivers located another student is coming up with another answer as to where the river is located and finally the teacher says okay everybody I want you to stop talking. I want you to put your maps down. I want you to put your compasses down. Just be quiet and listen. And when everybody had stopped talking and stopped rustling and sat still and listened, every one of those students could hear the sound of a river just over the next hill. Sometimes finding out where you are, whether it's in rough terrain or whether it's in life, has to do less with frantically studying the details of something and more with just looking at something or listening to something and seeing what it is that you can see and what it is that you can hear and joseph smith may have touched on this very principle when he said could you gaze into heaven five minutes you would know more than you would by reading all that ever was written on the subject that's from the history of the church volume 6 page 50. could you gaze into heaven five minutes you would know more than you would by reading all that ever was written on the subject now whether joseph smith ever actually gazed into heaven at all is a matter of faith but i think that what he says here may have an element of truth to it now unfortunately in the case of this purported letter from the first presidency the reason we know it is a hoax just by looking at it is because the lds church would never refund a dime of tithing to any of its members How do I know that? Well, first off, it never has and second off, I remember back when the market crashed in 2008 and 2009 and there were a lot of members of the church who were in severe economic difficulties. And I remember going to church, and at the beginning of a sacrament meeting, the bishop stood up and read a letter that was from the First Presidency. This was actually a real letter from the First Presidency, and that letter started off in a similar way to this fake letter, that the First Presidency recognizes that there are a lot of members who are going through a difficult time, what with the economic crisis that was happening in the country. Lots of members were losing lots of money, and they were having difficulty making ends meet. And I remember listening to... To the bishop read this letter from the First Presidency, and I was actually expecting that after that buildup, the First Presidency was going to announce a program whereby they were going to actually help the members, but they didn't do that. Instead, what the rest of the letter said was that even though you may be having trouble economically during these difficult times, don't forget to pay your tithing. That was one of those moments in my life in the LDS Church that I really remember being disappointed because I knew what the letter should say and therefore I thought I knew what the letter would say but then the letter ended up saying exactly the opposite of what I had expected and I was very disappointed in the leaders of my church and it is because I still feel that disappointment from over 10 years ago that I knew immediately when I saw this letter uh Uh-uh, not happening church is not letting go of any of its tithing money to give back to the members by the way the members who actually paid it in the first place They're not going to return any of that tithing money. That's how I knew it was a fake. From the very beginning I didn't have to look at the signatures I didn't have to look at the letterhead all I had to do was look at the words and you know I feel impressed here maybe I'm being moved upon by the Holy Ghost but I feel impressed here to speak directly to President Nelson on this issue because I think God is trying to get through to him I think Jesus wants him to get a message and that message is that you need to start letting go of some of this money and returning it to the members of the church in much the same way as this fake letter suggests. I am sure that President Nelson has read A Christmas Carol probably more than once and he's certainly seen a number of adaptations of The Christmas Carol, whether on TV, on the stage, or on the big screen. And I've got to think That probably every time he sees it, he feels a warm feeling in his heart at the end of the show when Ebenezer Scrooge wakes up on Christmas morning a new man because he realizes by the visitations of the spirits of Christmas Eve that he has been doing things all wrong. That he has spent his life hoarding money and keeping it close and not spending it, not giving it to anybody else, not helping anybody else with it. And I'm sure that President Nelson, like everybody else who reads A Christmas Carol or watches a presentation of it, feels the same way that Christmas morning comes, Ebenezer Scrooge is a changed man. And now he realizes he wants to use his wealth to help those around him, to be a force for good in the world. And yet, in spite of the fact that I'm sure that President Nelson has had these experiences with A Christmas Carol, he seems to be unable to make the connection between Ebenezer Scrooge and himself, between Ebenezer Scrooge and the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. That right now, the LDS Church is acting like Ebenezer Scrooge before Christmas morning. And what I would like the LDS Church to do is to act like Ebenezer Scrooge on Christmas morning. As Bill Real commented about this letter on his Facebook page, strange that anytime something positive is said to be happening by the LDS Church, it is assumed to be a hoax, if that doesn't speak volumes. And the next question immediately after that is, Is it a hoax? (laughs) Because Bill Real he knows it's a hoax. Immediately he knows it's a hoax. But there are still some people going, is it a hoax? Could it be true? It looks authentic. Look at the details. But as I say, the reason I know it is a hoax immediately is because it portrays the LDS Church as looking like Ebenezer Scrooge on Christmas morning instead of Ebenezer Scrooge before Christmas morning. And as with Ebenezer Scrooge, it would take a miracle For that to happen. So, if President Nelson can't get the message from Charles Dickens, maybe he can get the message from Jesus Christ in the New Testament. What I feel moved upon to do is to read a certain parable of Jesus Christ. To President Nelson and I hope that if President Nelson does not listen to this program that somebody who does listen to this program will find a means to get the message through to Salt Lake City here it is it's from chapter 16 of the gospel according to Luke this is the parable of the rich man and Lazarus now this is not the Lazarus who was raised back to life by Jesus Christ that's in the gospel of John this is a parable about a different Lazarus, a parable about a rich man and Lazarus. Lazarus here is a very, very poor man indeed. And this is how that parable goes. Are you listening, President Nelson? Starting with verse 19, there was a certain rich man. Now this rich man doesn't get a name in the parable. Only the poor man gets a name and that's Lazarus. There was a certain rich man which was clothed in purple and fine linen, and fared sumptuously every day. And there was a certain beggar, named Lazarus, which was laid at his gate, full of sores. Ugh. And desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. So Lazarus would be happy if he could just get the crumbs from this rich man's table. The rich man isn't going to eat the crumbs. They're just going to be thrown away. But Lazarus, the poor man, he'd like it if he could just eat the crumbs from this rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. This guy is in a really, really bad way. Verse 22, and it came to pass that the beggar died. Well, that's what's going to happen when you can't even eat the crumbs from the rich man's table and you've got dogs licking your sores. I mean, do you know what dogs do with their tongues? And it came to pass that the beggar died and was carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. And in hell he lift up his eyes. Uh Uh-oh, this was not a good thing for the rich man. And in hell he lifted up his eyes, being in torment, and seeing Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus, that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. So now the roles are kind of reversed, aren't they? It used to be that Lazarus would sit outside the rich man's gates and want to get crumbs from his table. Now we've got a role reversal. Reversal of fortune. Klaus van Bülow. And Lazarus is now high up. Apparently he's got access to plenty of water. And the rich man is now in hell. He's in torment. And he wants not the crumbs of food from the table, but he wants just a little bit of water for his tongue to cool it because he is tormented in this flame, but is that going to happen? Is Abraham going to permit that to happen? Well, apparently not, because verse twenty-five goes on to say, "But Abraham said, 'Son, remember that thou, in thy lifetime, received thy good things, and likewise Lazarus, evil things. But now he is comforted, and you are tormented. And besides all this, between us and you there is a great gulf fixed, so that they which would pass from hence to you cannot.'" neither can they pass to us that would come from thence. So Abraham's kind of saying here, hey, even if we wanted to, we couldn't, but we don't want to anyway. Verse 27, then he said, I pray thee, this is the rich man, I pray thee therefore, father, Abraham, I pray thee therefore, father, that thou would send him to my father's house, please send Lazarus to my father's house, why? For I have five brothers, that he, Lazarus, may testify unto them, my five brothers, lest they also come into this place, of torment. So the rich man realizes he's a goner. He's going to be in this torment forever. He's not going to even get a drop of water on his tongue from Lazarus. But that's because he waited until he died in order to see the error of his ways. And maybe his five brothers, if they realize that while they're alive, they can see the error of their ways like Ebenezer Scrooge on Christmas morning, that maybe they won't come to this awful end that the rich man has come to in hell. But this isn't going to happen either. Abraham is a big downer. Abraham said unto him, they have Moses and the prophets. So your brothers, they have the scriptures. They've got Moses and the prophets. Let your brothers hear them. And the rich man said, no, Father Abraham, but if one went unto them from the dead, they will repent. And finally, Abraham puts the kibosh on that idea as well and says, if they hear not Moses and the prophets, if they won't listen to the scriptures, neither will they be persuaded, though one rose from the dead. And this is the problem essentially, that I see going on here. First off, it's very interesting, this final statement from Abraham in the parable, that if a person is set in their ways, if they think they already know what the truth is, they're not going to be persuaded any differently, even if somebody rose from the dead and came to them and appeared to them and told them they were wrong. If they won't listen to the scriptures, then they're not going to listen, even if somebody comes back from the grave and tells them. And frankly, even though I see this parable as having direct application to President Nelson as the president of the LDS Church and the one ultimately in control of all of its assets and all of the funds in the EPA account, I do not think he will hear the message. Even if President Nelson, by some miracle, did hear me reading to him this parable from Luke chapter 16, he would not hear get it. And the reason he wouldn't get it and the reason he doesn't get it and the reason he's never going to get it is given at the end of this parable. If he cannot hear the scriptures, if he cannot hear the message of Jesus in the scriptures, if he cannot hear the message of the gospel in this parable of the rich man and Lazarus, which obviously he can't. And by the way, he knows it. He's got to have read it. Multiple times he knows this parable, but he will not understand the meaning of the parable. And so I could paraphrase the last verse here as follows. And Abraham said unto the rich man in hell, If your brothers hear not Moses and the prophets and Jesus Christ in the New Testament, neither will they be persuaded, even though they listened, to the Radio Free Mormon podcast. Now, before I close tonight's podcast, I want to play for you something very interesting that was said by M. Russell Ballard in the most recent General Conference, April 2020. You may recall that he gave the second talk in the Saturday morning session of General Conference, and I've already done an episode that deals with the lion's share of his talk the lion's share of his talk had to do with his recounting of Joseph Smith's first vision. And you may remember that we went through that talk and we showed how he took elements and pieces of each of the four primary accounts of Joseph Smith's first vision and wove them into one seamless whole that avoids the conflicts and contradictions if you look at each of the four primary accounts of the first vision side by side. But at the end of his talk, He throws in something very unusual, something that seems to have little to nothing to do with what he's talked about during the main portion of his talk. And that's what I want to close with tonight. But in order to put that in context, I want to talk a little bit about how it is that money is very, very important in the LDS church. Paying your tithing is very, very important in the LDS church. In fact, paying your tithing is one of the non-negotiables about being a member of the LDS church. We are taught by church leaders in general conference that if the choice comes down to paying our electricity bill or paying our tithing, we should pay our tithing. If the choice comes down to paying for the necessaries of life for our family... And paying tithing, then we should pay our tithing. And in fact, if the choice comes down to buying food for our children so that they won't be hungry and paying our tithing, in that situation as well, we are supposed to pay our tithing. As I say, it is a non negotiable in the church. It doesn't matter how much you might need that extra 10% that you have worked for or what you might need it for, there is no reason good enough or need dire enough for it to be acceptable to church leaders to not pay your tithing. That 10% goes to the church. End of story, no questions asked. This first quote is from a talk given by Elder Lynn Robbins back in 2005, play the tape. One reason the Lord
1: illustrates doctrines with the most extreme circumstances is to eliminate excuses. If the Lord expects even the poorest widow to pay her mite, where does that leave all others who find that it is not convenient or easy to sacrifice. No bishop, no missionary, should ever hesitate or lack the faith to teach the law of tithing to the poor. The sentiment of they can't afford to needs to be replaced with they can't afford not to. One of the first things a bishop must do to help the needy is ask them to pay their tithing. Like the widow, if a destitute family is faced with the
0: decision of paying their tithing or eating, They should pay their tithing. The bishop can help them with their food. And the second quote comes from General Conference of April 2017 in this memorable talk by Valérie Cordon. Play the tape on that one. When I was young, I worked in my father's factory during vacation.
1: The first question my father always asked after I received my salary was, what are you going to do with your money? I knew the answer and responded, pay my tithing, and save for my mission. After working with him for about eight years and constantly answering his same question, my father figured he had taught me about paying my tithing. What he didn't realize was that I had learned this important principle in just one weekend. Let me tell you how I learned that principle. After some events related to a civil war in Central America, my father's business went bankrupt. He went from about 200 full-time employees to fewer than five sewing operators who worked as needed in the garage of our home. One day, during those difficult times, I heard my parents discussing whether they should pay tithing or buy food for the children. On Sunday, I followed my father to see what he was going to do. After our church meetings, I saw him take an envelope and put his tithing in it. That was only part of the lesson. The question that remained for me
0: was what we were going to eat. But is it possible? that under certain extreme circumstances, a member of the church could pray to God about whether he or she should pay their tithing to the church or use it for necessary things for other reasons. Well, not that long ago, Elder Oaks weighed in on the issue, and even though he gives lip service to the idea of individual revelation and individual revelation being able to trump the general principles which he teaches in General Conference and which his other brethren in the quorum of the 12 teach in General Conference, when the rubber hits the road and push comes to shove, if you receive a revelation that says that your circumstances are such that you should not pay tithing, Elder Oaks is very clear that any such revelation Does not come from God. Uh, If
2: we get an impression contrary to the scriptures, to the commandments of God, to the teachings of his leaders, then we know that it can't be coming from from the Holy Ghost. The the gospel is consistent throughout. I had an experience once with uh, some members who sought my counsel uh, in this circumstance. They said, Our parents have told us that they've gotten a revelation that they don't need to pay tithing and they don't need to attend church anymore. What do you think of that? And I said, well, I don't
0: question your parents' revelation, but they got it from the wrong source. (laughs) The reason I think the emphasis that the church places on tithing is appropriate here is to put it in juxtaposition to all the money that they have accumulated in the enzyme peak account they have accumulated this money off the tithing of their members and investments the church has made with that tithing and yet even such a nominal idea as returning to members of the church tithing that they've paid over the past three years, as was set forth in that fake letter from the first presidency, dated May 3, 2020, even such a nominal idea as that, even such a good idea as that, is something that, unfortunately, seasoned members of the church know automatically is a fake because the LDS church would never return any money that has been contributed to it. By the tithing of its members. Now has the church ever done anything good with the money it gets from its members? Yes, I'm sure that it has. I don't want to be understood here as saying the church never does anything good with the billions and billions of dollars that it has accumulated in its war chest. No, the church will donate several millions of dollars here and several millions of dollars there for a good cause. And as a general rule, the church always makes sure that the members of the church, as well as the world at large, know about these generous donations made by the church by publishing it on the church website. Now, a few million here and a few million there is definitely a laudatory thing. I want to give the church props for that. But I cannot help but recognize that the church has billions and billions of dollars. The church had, at least as of six months ago, $100 billion in an investment account. As I say, they may have substantially less than that now. They may have between 60 and 70 billion in that count due to the downturn in the stock market. But it would be a funny thing to use the word only in front of 60 or 70 billion dollars. I also have to recognize that a billion, one billion, is 1,000 million dollars. So if we're comparing the several million that the church gives here and there for good causes and then publicizes it to the world so that they can be sure that we know about it, if we compare those millions of dollars to the billions, billions of dollars that the church has on hand, it's really not that impressive by comparison. I also remember a really good program that the LDS Church started a number of years ago. It was the Perpetual Education Fund. And I remember being at General Conference and hearing President Hinckley announce the creation of the Perpetual Education Fund. And I remember thinking at the time, this is a good program, what a great idea to have a Perpetual Education Fund that members of the church donate to, obviously the more affluent members of the church, donating to a fund that is there to allow members of the church who are disadvantaged in one way or another and would not be able to pursue college level education without some help to create a fund so that those members could go to college and could pursue higher education. I thought that was a great idea. I still continue to think it's a great idea in theory but the devil like most things is in the details i remember even at the time it was announced that president hinckley said or perhaps it was sometime shortly after that but i think it was at the time it was announced that president hinckley said that this would be a loan to disadvantaged members of the church it wasn't simply a gift it was a loan and that they would be expected to repay that loan with a modest amount of interest he didn't say how much the interest was but he simply said it was a modest amount of interest. And I remember being just a little bit uncomfortable at the time with the idea of having a loan repaid with interest when that loan is made from a fund that was created entirely by the contributions of the church members. In other words, it's not enough for the church to create a fund and ask members of the church with means to donate to it in order to create a pool that would serve as a basis to loan money to disadvantaged members and then to have them pay it back. But to have them pay back interest on that loan just sounds like the church is a little too interested in making money. Remember, this isn't the church's money. All the church is doing is managing a fund that is created by extra donations from members of the church. These donations are made above and beyond tithing and fast offerings. And so it seemed to me that for the church to create a fund like this, above and beyond tithing and fast offerings, and then to use it to loan out money from this account, but then not only to have it repaid to the account, but on top of that, to have interest paid on those loans, made me a little uncomfortable because it seemed to me that the church should be interested exclusively in doing what it was that this fund was ostensibly set up to do, which was to help finance the education of disadvantaged members. But no, that's not enough for them. They want extra money on top of that in the form of interest paid on the loan. Whether it's a modest amount, whatever that means, or not, it struck me as simply a means for the church to make money on the proposition. But it was about 10 years ago that That I became even more disillusioned with the entire program, and that's when I found out from researcher Damon M. Smith, the author of The Book of Mammon, which is subtitled A Book About a Book About the Corporation That Owns the Mormons. You may remember that book. I actually got a copy of it and read through it and listened to Damon Smith being interviewed on different podcasts regarding the subject matter of his book, and specifically the subject matter of The Perpetual Education Fund. Because, as it turned out, the church wasn't just making money off this fund by charging interest to those disadvantaged members of the church to whom it loaned the money in the first place. No, the reality was actually much worse than that. According to Damon Smith, and I have every reason to think that he knows what he's talking about, the Perpetual Immigration Fund is not necessarily just a fund. It is, in fact, in more technical terms, an endowment Now, what does that mean? What is an endowment? And I'm talking about a financial endowment, not a temple endowment. A financial endowment is a fund where you take all the contributions and put it into one account. It could be multiple accounts, but for purposes here, we'll just talk about one account. And the contributions are considered to be the principal in the account. That is the part that is made up of all the donations that creates this account In the first place now an endowment which is what the perpetual immigration fund is an endowment maintains all of the principal in the account it never loans out or discharges or does anything with the principal itself instead the principal can be invested in any of a number of investments and thereby create interest on the principal And it is only the interest on the account that is loaned out to disadvantaged members to help them with their education. Well, what happens to the principal? The answer to that question is shrouded in mystery. But one thing that seems very clear is that it becomes the property of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. These are the details that President Hinckley did not announce about the fund. This is not generally known to members of the church. But it is safe to say that millions and millions and millions of dollars have been contributed over the years to the Perpetual Immigration Fund. Once again, these are contributions made by members of the church who can afford to make those contributions above and beyond their regular tithing and fast offerings. The church has now created a fund, technically an endowment, where they will get to keep all of those donations to the Perpetual Education Fund. They are the property of the church, and they are not going to loan out any of the principal of that fund. Instead, it's going to be invested, interest will be made on the fund, and it is only out of the interest that those loans will be made. That's what makes it an endowment. I just located the audio of President Hinckley's announcement of the Perpetual Education Fund back in March of 2001. It was announced at the priesthood session on March 31st, 2001. And I'm going to play the clip here in which he makes the announcement. And actually, as I listen closely to the words he uses, President Hinckley does say that this is going to be an endowment. Now, he doesn't use the word endowment, but he says that the loans will be made not out of the principal contributions to the fund, but out of the earnings to the fund that the principal produces. Listen closely, and you will hear him actually say that. So at a minimum, you can know that I'm not making this up out of whole cloth. This really is the way the Perpetual Education Fund operates, and it's the way it was designed to operate from its inception. And I was right. President Hinckley does also say that on top of the fact that they're keeping the principal and only making the loans out of the interest or the earnings, as he puts it, yes, the church will be charging a small amount of interest to those Latter-day Saints who are lucky enough to get a loan. Play the tape. The
2: church is establishing a fund largely from the contributions of faithful Latter-day Saints who have and will contribute for this purpose. We are deeply grateful to them, based on similar principles to those underlying the perpetual immigration fund. We shall call it the perpetual education fund. From the earnings of this fund.
0: Wait a second, did you catch it? From the earnings from this fund. Play it again.
2: From the earnings of this fund. From the earnings of this fund. From the earnings of this fund, loans will be made to ambitious young men and women, for the most part returned missionaries, so that they may borrow money to attend school. Then, when they qualify for employment, it is anticipated that they will return that which they have borrowed, together with a small amount of interest designed as an incentive to repay the loan.
0: And so that last part is the part about the interest, which President Hinckley characterizes as a small amount of interest, and it's for a good reason. It's so that the people who receive the loans will have an incentive to repay the loans. Now, I'm not sure how it is that adding interest on top of a loan, which itself is just made from interest itself, can act as any kind of incentive to repay the loan. I mean, it might sound to some like it's just another way for the church to make more money, but it's not, because President Hinckley... So the church is immediately realizing an increase in income from the donations themselves. The church owns all these millions and millions of dollars that have been donated to the perpetual immigration fund. The church that invests that principle obtains interest and the church gets to keep the interest on the perpetual immigration fund as well. And out of that interest, they're then making loans to disadvantaged members. Now you might think that since the church already has the benefit of keeping all the principal from this account and loaning out only the interest on this account, that they might not be requiring that these loans be paid back at all by the disadvantaged members once it's used for tuition for higher education. But no, the church wants those loans back, and on top of that, the church wants interest paid back on those loans, which loans themselves were created solely out of the interest from this perpetual education fund. It was when I learned this fact that I became extremely disillusioned because this is one of the few programs that I had ever heard about the church creating that actually helped out those members of the church who were disadvantaged and could not get to college by any other means. And I learned from Damon Smith that actually, even though the purpose of the fund was good, the church could not seem to resist the temptation of enriching itself by what is essentially triple dipping. It's not double dipping, it's triple dipping. First off, the church gets to keep all the principal. That is the church's property now. That's the first dip. The second dip is that the church invests it and gets to keep all the interest that is made off of this fund. That's the second dip. And the third dip is that out of the interest, loans are made to disadvantaged members and then those loans must be repaid with interest. That's the triple dip. So even a program like the Perpetual Education Fund that is ostensibly a good idea ends up being a means of enriching the LDS church. And I would say unjustly enriching the LDS Church, and maybe it is not just the fact that the LDS Church is once again enriching itself, but that it is enriching itself while proclaiming to the world and to the members of the church that they are helping out the disadvantaged members of the church with their education. That rubs me the wrong way. And along these lines, I can't help but remember that five years ago in 2015, the church through another of its many financial arms called LDS Philanthropies actually put up a video in which they promoted the idea that elderly members of the church should disinherit any of their children who are inactive or God forbid have actually left the church and instead donate that money to, you guessed it, the LDS church. Now you cannot find this video on the internet anymore because the LDS church, after receiving a lot of well-deserved pushback on this particular video, took it down. But in the video, the LDS church presented a faithful Mormon dad who was quoted as saying For them to inherit my estate, i.e. his kids, for them to inherit my estate, they will have to become what I'm trying to become. If they exercise their agency contrary to my beliefs, then the option is that entire inheritance can go to the church. That's the quote that was being promoted by the LDS Church in this video put up by LDS Philanthropies. So once again, I hate to say it, but it seems to be true that if there is any program whereby the LDS Church can make a buck, they're going to be first in line. The Church does not appear to be so much about preaching the gospel or taking care of its members as it is about feathering its own nest. So now let's get to that statement by Elder Ballard at the end of his talk in the most recent General Conference. The name of the talk is, Shall We Not Go On In So Great A Cause?, And as I said earlier, he goes over Joseph Smith's first vision, but he also goes over the death of Joseph Smith and how Joseph Smith and Hiram Smith sacrificed even their lives for the church. He also refers to Lucy Mack Smith, Joseph and Hiram's mother, and how she sacrificed her sons for the church.
3: Before his death in 1844, Joseph wrote a spirited letter to the saints. It was a call to action which continues in the church today. Brethren and sisters, shall we not go on in so great a cause? Go forward and not backward. Courage, brothers and sisters, on and on to the victory. Let us therefore as a Church and a people and as Latter-day Saints offer unto the Lord an offering in righteousness.
0: Now that's the end of the quote that Elder Ballard cites from Joseph Smith and it's actually from section 128 in the Doctrine and Covenants. Let us therefore as a church and a people and as Latter-day Saints offer unto the Lord an offering in righteousness. Now at this point, Elder Ballard's talk is essentially concluded but what he seems to do is key off of this statement offering unto the Lord an offering in righteousness and he's going to finish his talk by challenging all of the Latter-day Saints to make their own offering unto the Lord. So let me just play the last two paragraphs of Elder Ballard's talk now so you can know what it is I'm talking about and see what it is you think of this. Play the tape. As we listen to
3: the Spirit during this 200th anniversary celebration this weekend, consider what offering you will present to the Lord in righteousness in the coming days. Be courageous, share it with someone you trust, and most importantly, please take time to do it. I know that the Savior is pleased when we present Him an offering from our hearts in righteousness, just as He was pleased with the faithful offering of those remarkable brothers
0: Joseph and Hiram Smith. So this is a very strange statement at least it's strange to me he wants the members of the church to make some sort of offering he doesn't give us any clues as to what that offering may be he's already sort of guilted the listeners by comparing it to the offering that joseph and Hiram smith made which was obviously their lives so any offering we make would pale in comparison to that i certainly don't think he's asking the members to offer their lives like joseph and Hiram did but he doesn't give us any guidelines as to what kind of offering he's talking about and what kind of offering he's challenging the members of the church to make. Only that it's very important that they do so. He wants them to be courageous. He wants them to share it with someone they trust. In other words, the idea that if you share a goal with somebody else, then you're more likely to do it. And most important, he says, please take the time to do it. Well, to do what? He doesn't really tell us. He just says we need to make an offering unto the Lord. And obviously, this offering would be on top of our regular tithing. It would be on top of our regular fast offerings. It would be on top of our regular church service. It would be on top of our regular temple service. It would be on top of the mountain of things that we're already required to do as members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. But that's not enough. Once again, just like it wasn't enough for the LDS Church to help out disadvantaged members with their finances for higher education. No, they had to make money off the proposition. Even so, it seems that Elder Ballard is saying is that everything that you're doing, everything you're contributing, everything you're tithing, everything you're donating right now, still not enough. You need to do something in addition to that. And he's going to leave that up to the individual members to decide. Now, at least Elder Ballard doesn't specify that this offering needs to be more money, but he doesn't say it can't be more money either. And unfortunately, the message I take from this is that no matter how much we as Latter-day Saints do for the church, no matter how much we sacrifice for the church, no matter how much time we spend for the church, no matter how much effort we give for the church, it is ultimately never enough. There is always something more that we need to do. And with Elder Ballard's challenge, he can't even define what it is that we need to do, but you need to do something more. It is little wonder that more and more often we are hearing talks in General Conference about the crushing burden that many members of the church feel because of the obligations that are placed upon their shoulders by the LDS church. And that sometimes those crushing burdens drive members of the church into the shadowlands of depression. So on the one hand, we're hearing talks about depression, about members feeling overwhelmed and how they shouldn't really feel overwhelmed because they only need to do as much as they can do. They don't have to do everything at once. They don't have to run faster than they have strength to run. But even while we are hearing talks like this more frequently now in general conference, we still get talks like this from Elder Ballard that let us know that no matter how much we're doing, it's still not enough. It is because the church requires so much of its members that this fake letter about a tithing refund should not be fake. It should be true. It should be a real letter. This is something that the leadership of the church should be doing and reimbursing its members to help them out in a real way during a time of economic distress. And indeed, by the way, a church spokesman has confirmed the fact that this letter is fake. This is not something that is in question at all. It's a fake letter. But what it should teach us is that the tithing revenue stream in the church is a one-way street. Money only goes into the church from the members. It never comes back. No matter how dire their circumstances may be, no matter what economic problems may be going on throughout the nation and throughout the world, there's not going to be any financial assistance from the church, even paying money back to the members that the members themselves paid to the church in the first place. And of course, we also know that no matter how dire the economic circumstances that members of the church may find themselves in, their duty is not to receive tithing, their duty is to continue to pay tithing, more than paying the electricity bills, more than paying the mortgage, more than paying for food to feed their children. Tithing is only to be paid by the members, tithing is never to be returned to the members. So if you ever encounter a letter purportedly from the First Presidency of the Church that says it's returning even one thin dime of tithing to the members who paid it in the first place, you don't have to look at the letterhead, you don't have to compare signatures. You can know right off the bat. It's a fake. That's about all for tonight. Until next time, this is Radio Free Mormon, signing off the air.